0: well good morning it is good to uh, it's good to see everybody um, lot to uh, lot to go over this morning um, and it's 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 really funny where we've ended up right now in the gospel um, story in in the book of Mark has a ton of overlap with uh, where we are in the 1689 um, so you know again I was left kind of just laughing a little bit this morning as we talked so much um, on, on the Sabbath and, and a lot of what Mark and allows us to see is helping the Gentile mind understand where we are in the Hebrew world. Um, talked about the law this morning. At, I think of the just the blessing it is to have Christ as Savior, not because of license and being able to do whatever we want to do. Um, you think of the Hebrew approach to the law if you would have had 613 parts of the law, 240-some were positive, 360-some were negative. Can you imagine trying to, the burden of trying to keep up with that, if that's even the right <laughs> interpretation anyway? Um, Jesus came and fulfilled that perfectly as our Savior, and He is our righteousness. What a blessing. Listen, this morning as a, as a leadership team to a study on Romans 14 in the weaker brother. And um, you've got this scenario where people are buying meat that had been given over to, to idols. And some of the brothers were hurt by that and some of the brothers were fined by that. And the reality is, really, either's okay. But it's not okay to press your license or to press your law into another person. That's what hurts people. And I just think it's so incredible that neither were wrong, per se, unless they were pressing on someone else what they felt. Um, what a great Savior is Christ. There's a truth in what we're going to study today that, that flows through the text, and, and we'll study it as we look at this uh, Joseph, the, the rich Sanhedrinist that Mark captures for us. And that is this, that we are better off in death than we are in life. And that's difficult to nail your mind down to. I, I know not, not everyone is as culturally attuned as I am. Uh, there's, a, uh, there's a song that says that everyone wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go right now. Um. And that's a distraction that the world, we believe, we really firmly believe that the world offers us more than death and presence with God. I'm, I forget who it was, who the author was that, that wrote and said, whatever you can say, if I had this, it would satisfy me. And that is more attractive to you than God eternally. And that's an idol. God is so much better than anything this world can offer, which is crazy because this world can be pretty great. And we should enjoy it. We should glorify God as we enjoy all of the things that he's given to us. And to think he's so much more valuable than any treasure is awesome. Because i got to admit, I have a great time. Life is good. God is great. I complain about being tired. That's just because I'm an idiot. God lets me go to sleep. I just busy myself with other things or more caffeine. Don't turn here. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but... Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That should encourage us. That should encourage us to a transcendent life, a life that really is not overly concerned with what happens here. We 're concerned in so much as we want to be good citizens, we want to be good parents and friends and children, we want to follow the laws of the land, all for god 's glory. but we know that all of this is trivial, all of this is tertiary it 's but a vapor and I would encourage you in the winter time as you're as you're in Harrisburg, because the city in its infinite wisdom sells steam to everyone who's connected to it without a choice to purchase that steam or not. If you look downtown, there's these manhole covers um. And, and the manhole covers have holes in them and, and you know they will push the steam out through that system and you watch as a car goes by. And I always think of this when I see it, that our lives are but a vapor. You watch as a car goes by and that car goes and it pulls the, the steam along with it and you watch it, it looks so interesting at first. It has tons of shape and then it just goes and goes and goes and it just goes away. Where does it go? Who knows? And that's how our lives are described as but a vapor. Most of us unless you're like super into Ancestry.com, couldn't say who our great, great grandparent was. Great, great grandparent. I know a few of you can, and you're dying to tell me their name right now. But you don't really remember them. This life is but a vapor. We're gone, we're forgotten. We put names on a building, like walk around this roof, you see all kinds of dedications on this stained glass window, class number 63, and that meant something. It means Nothing. And so when we can understand that we are better off in death than we are in life, it gives us freedom. Everything is a little bit less important and really more for God's glory. We can glorify God even more when we realize this isn't it. This is not the whole and sum of existence. And how sad it would be if it was. Let's look at Mark chapter 15, and and we'll take on verses uh, 40, 40 and 41 first. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, I... I, pick up on that because we, we skipped through a section of last week but that's important and it will become more important as we look at this text. But ask yourself at this point where where are the where are the fellas? Probably probably already watching TV, a little Netflix, pull down some greatest catch, season 92. Right? halfway through a carton of Marlboros, a carton of Pall Malls, catching crabs. Verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Pause there in verse 42. Mark is helping us out. This is written towards a Gentile audience. He's helping us understand what's going on in the world, what's going on in the time frame, and the Jewishness of this world. How are we to understand this time frame? Well, it was the day of preparation. Preparation for what? Glad you asked. The day before the Sabbath. So Mark is laying out this understanding for his Gentile readership. When evening has come, As it says here, verse 42, depending on your translation, it's going to be turned in different ways. I'm reading from the ESV. And when evening had come is really just a a two-word phrase in Greek that in the Jewish mind means the events that they would have been very well aware of. The same phrase is used in Mark chapter 1 and verse 32 that says, "...that evening at sundown," same two words, "...they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons." Also used in Matthew 20 and verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up until the first. This is the time before sundown. Where we are here in this story, it would be these maybe these three hours, this last set of time. And why is it so difficult to understand the timeline of Scripture? And I'll tell you, it's because we have a Western mind. We have an American mind around all of this. And so it's very difficult to understand because we have our lives are very easy. We make a lot of errors and we just fix them with leap year. You ever think about leap? like, oh, it's OK. It's just a leap year. It's a rounding error. If you're a uh, if, if you're into finance, it's a journal entry on the calendar problem. So as as J.D. mentioned this morning, the Jews are on a lunar calendar. They're not on the exact same calendar we are. You try to look at the months, you count like 11 except for sometimes it's, you know, 13. Sometimes it's March. Sometimes it's April. It's Nissan. We don't really know what's going on. We don't know how to think through time, and so we feel like we run into problems, but there are no problems. We're just not looking at the situation correctly. In fact, one of the references from this morning, John chapter 20 and verse 1, he says, on the first day. This helps the Greek reader. Luke said, very early in the morning. Mark said, at the rising of the sun. It's describing the same situation, but for different groups of people. What's the first day of the week? I remember Patrick and I had this when we first started building the first church website. We talked about starting off the calendar for the church. Well, what day do we want it to start on? We want it to start on Sunday, the day of our risen Lord. Not on Monday, the way that we tend to think. Sun up, sun down, we don't care. Sunrise is the new day, maybe it's right after midnight. You ever get confused when you're writing someone and you want to say noon? I always just write noon. I don't know what to write. Is it a.m. or p.m.? I really, I don't know. The mind is blank. I say noon. The day of preparation. Also, a single word. The day of preparation. They're preparing for Sabbath. There's a lot that has to get done. Um... I actually hunt with a guy, a deer hunt with a guy who is a Sabbath-observing Jewish man. We have this pattern for about the last decade. We've hunted in the same way on Monday. We meet up Monday morning. We let the kids hunt this little kind of honey hole because Monday used to be opening day before everybody started changing everything and messing us all up. So Monday, we had this area that was kind of untouched, and we let the kids hunt there, right? Um... And then we'd do some things sporadically throughout the week. And then Friday is when a large group of us would meet up and we'd do some things in the morning all day. We'd hunt together and then we'd hunt Friday night. But the difference about Friday night is that my friend would always pop on the radio and surprise us that he's in the truck and he's leaving. Why? Because by sundown, he needs to be home because it's Sabbath as Friday comes along. So when sundown is home, I remember one year we were out and we went with this crazy guy who's a gunsmith at a local store in the area, and he was a little nuts, frankly. And we'd been out hunting all day long, and we ended up on the street. We went out for, for miles and miles and miles. I don't even know where we were. We may not have even been in Pennsylvania anymore by this point. I remember at some time I asked somebody, hey, should we eat? Is it noon? He's like, bro, it's like four in the afternoon. Confusing. And I remember my buddy... He's like, to heck with this. I'm leaving, right? He was booking it. He went down out of the woods, started going down the road. I'm like, dude, you're my ride. This is our first year hunting together. I remember I was half chasing him down the road. And we got to his truck, and it was dark. And we had been having a conversation all day because I used to, I would just ask him in the woods really annoyingly, well, what do you think about Paul? And he would always say, well, I think Paul just like saw this opportunity. The boss was gone, and now he could start up his own thing. I was like, really? You think that brought him a lot of benefit, starting up his own thing when the boss was gone? And so I said to my friend, "I said, "What are you going to do now? It's sundown, and you're out we're We're getting into a truck in the middle of the woods. you've been playing frontiersmen, and it's the year two thousand and so he brings me to a passage that he puts the weight of himself on and it's it's um, that his sins are forgiven by the by the bulls of lips through prayer, by praying, because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's no bleeding of animals you don't see a sandy bottom ground in a tent somewhere where there are still animal sacrifices. In fact, if you were to go to Israel today, folks are still working to rebuild the temple. And they've got, they, they can bring you to a place and show you the diagrams of the building that they're planning to create and how ornate it will be. And the drawers full of all of the knives and implements that will be used to bring the sacrificial system back. Work and work and work. And God put up this pattern for us. Not so that we could satisfy it, so that we could see it. It's for us. It's a mirror to show us that we can't uphold His holy character. And He always gave a way of escape. There was always the sacrifice. And blood was the requirement so that we could be close to the requirements of sin. Then we started watching The Simpsons, and we started playing uh, video games, and we became desensitized to it all. But I think if we were to go back to that, right, because most of our food, yeah, our, what is our, how does our meat come? Not attached to an animal that walks around. Our meat comes in a nice little styrofoam package with a little pad underneath so you don't have to see anything icky. And it's covered in plastic. And it costs like $5.13 a pound. At least for the, it did. Now it seems to be much more expensive. But I guess that's because the economy is doing well. Everything that we're about to see in these scriptures, if we burn through this too quickly, we'll miss a lot of satisfaction of what God said would be. Prophecy, a lot of what he said was going to occur is all happening in this this little window right here because all of scripture has a crimson thread that runs through it. From Genesis and from Revelation, it's all centering on this point in history and God is accomplishing so much in these moments, if we read in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, we're going to see something that's important to the narrative. So remember, Christ and the cross, this is not plan B. You know, it's not as though the Roman soldiers were good. And so they were able to capture Jesus and, and they were really tricky. So they found a way to fool him in the court of law. And so now God's like, oh, OK, all right, Jesus hanging on the cross. I know what I'll do. I'll punish all sin on him and then I'll find a way out for everybody. This was always the plan. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, you know, like, just in case these things happen, his body shall not remain all night on a tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hangman is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord, your God, is giving you for an inheritance. Now that's good, and that's sanitary. When I was army, I was um, a uh, combat lifesaver and uh, a uh, field sanitation specialist. One is cool, the other ain't. Um, And one of the things that you would have to do is to find a casualty collection point, right? Because you just can't have bodies all over the place, right? You can't have... You can't have bodies piled up over here. You can't have bodies hanging on things. It's unclean. And so, by His grace, God gave these kinds of rules that help the people. But also, as we'll see, become very, very important to what He is going to do through Christ. The Sabbath is coming. It's the Friday but dusk hasn't come yet. So like my friend, people are making preparations. There's all kinds of things that need to happen. Even still today, if you go and you buy an oven, depending where you shop, if you buy an oven, you'll see Sabbath mode on that oven. Because you can preset it to cook the dinners for you so that you don't have to do the work of making food. Um, if you go to uh, B&D Distributors, which is like a photography website, where you can buy cameras and all kinds of things. We've gotten all kinds of equipment for the church there. It's based in New York City. It's very much a Jewish-owned company. And when it's Friday, the site goes offline. You're not going to order anything until the Sabbath is over. Um, or if you, if you come even here, if you go downtown near the synagogue, you'll see people walking around outside. Well, that shouldn't be, right? You're not supposed to leave your home. But there's an aruv, an area where a cable attaches to the synagogue, and it covers an area. Um, downtown so that people can be effectively you know, in the temple area and still moving around outside. In Los Angeles, there's a 68-square-mile aruv that runs through the city, and then there's rabbis in the sky. The rabbis go up in the chopper. Somebody else drives it, right? And there's a Twitter feed that says whether or not the aruv is intact so that people know if they can leave their homes or not. But this particular Sabbath was special because it's occurring on the Passover. What's the Passover? If you remember the story of the Passover, this is when the, the angel was going to pass over the homes that were covered in the blood. And how did the blood go? Doorposts, lentils. Then the angel of death would pass over those homes. And so this Passover is occurring when Christ, the Lamb of God, has died He's not been left to hang over the Sabbath, as we'll see, because Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 says he needs to go into a grave. And guess what going into a grave means? You're not alive. We read that these people have perfected, they may not have invented, but they have perfected crucifixion. And we're going to see a a life check on Christ that's more than maybe missing a faint pulse. It's a piercing of the side and a flowing of blood and liquid out of the lungs. It's a verification that you are not alive. Um, there's something that medical professionals do to see if you're pretending to be passed out, a sternal rub. They do this in correctional facilities just to check to make sure you are conscious or not. If, if, that, if somebody comes and they rub your sternum with that knuckle, you're going to react if you're conscious. These Roman guards knew exactly when someone was alive or not. If you look to John chapter 19, verses 31 to 34, we read in John's gospel that since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies wouldn't remain on the cross, on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Pause. Pause. Why break the legs? Because what would happen was either they were nailed to this beam or had their feet tied to this beam. Sometimes there would be a shelf that they could stand up on, and this would give relief from the hanging so that you could breathe again. I was talking about my rib. When my rib dislocates in my back, it affects my, my abilities to breathe. Right, Because you start to breathe, and you get a sharp pain, and you stop breathing. I don't know if you've ever felt that kind of pain in your ribs or your back before. But what they would do to make it so that they could no longer get up and stretch out the diaphragm and get air into the lungs is break the legs so that they would sink down. There was nothing left that they could do, and they would effectively drown inside themselves. Since it was the day of preparation, we don't want to be, we don't want to be horrible. It's the day of preparation. Go Break their legs so that they drown on a cross. That would be better. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and the other, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. At once, there came out blood and water. Now, this isn't just interesting information. This is important. Psalm 34, verses 19 through 21. Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the lord delivers him out of them all he keeps all his bones not one of them is broken affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate righteousness will be condemned think of exodus chapter 12 and verse 46 i'm going to i'm going to go through three you don't have to flip to these exodus chapter 12 verse 46 Speaking of the Passover lamb, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Numbers 19, 12. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break of any of its bones. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. Now, if you follow the traditional order of Calvary, you're probably already picturing it, right? It's this little half circle. Maybe you've seen it as a, as a, as a logo. Um, maybe you've seen uh, Adam Nicholas has a gigantic scene of it tattooed across his back. It's a little half circle like this. And there's the three crosses. And we know that the criminals are on either side and Jesus is dead in the middle. But again, perhaps tradition gets it wrong. Nice try. Play again. They break one of the criminal's legs. I guess they would have to go around Jesus to the other side of the mountain here and break the other one so that then they can come back in the center and check Jesus for life. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And If you were to look at Mark's gospel in 15 and 39, you would read this. And when the centurion... Who stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, "Truly, this man was the son of God." It, it's just so incredible to me to think about these scenes, these scenarios. They let Barabbas go, one who was guilty of murder during an actual insurrection. The crowd screams, well, what should I do with him? I don't think he's guilty. What should I do with him? What do they scream? Crucify him. They have this bloodlust, this desire to see Jesus be torturously murdered, mocked, shamed, hung on a cross, exposed like this, paraded through town with a sign that shows what his crimes were. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. As we continue in this story in verse 43, we read that Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was, with, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So this is a maybe a first mention here of this Joseph. If we look at Luke, Luke tells us a little bit more in Luke 23, verses 50 and 51. I know we're all over the place. You don't have to flip. Justin has been dutifully looking in his Bible and typing in every word of it so far this morning. Luke 23, verses 50 and 51. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Aramaea, He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. So if you remember, we talked about the council that would have been there to try Jesus. This council was set up in very specific ways, most of which were not followed. Any council that would have resulted in... um, and a capital punishment would have needed to have happened in the light of day. They did a lot of this during the, during the evening and during the early hours, kind of pressed this thing through as quickly as they could. The, the, the accused would have faced the accusers in the court. Everyone would have taken turns. If you spoke against him, you couldn't also speak for him. Maybe our Congress could, could follow some of these uh, non-bi-directional positions. Um, You couldn't speak against him if you were to speak for him and vice versa. And then everyone would vote in the presence of all of the people. And it would go from the youngest to the oldest so that the oldest couldn't influence the decision. It was supposed to be very fair. It was supposed to be reflective of God's justice. We read that Joseph was a part of this trial. He was a Sanhedrinist. He was powerful. He was probably very wealthy. Like, we'll see in a minute that he, he goes to... To pilot and asks for the body. Um, not anybody just gets to walk in and see pilot. You, know, you or I go in and try to see pilot, I, I don't know what would happen. An everyday person goes in and tries to see pilot and say, well, gee whiz, can I have the body? You think they get an audience? You think pilot says, well, let's check and see if he's passed, and then sure. We don't get to know maybe as much as we want to, but maybe that's good. Maybe that keeps us focused in the story a little bit. Um, I wanted to read a quote from, uh, from John Calvin, which I think is good in driving home our point that we're, we're better off in death as believers than we are in this life, because that's very important. The more that we realize that, the better off we'll be. We're better off in death than we are in this life. Here's what Calvin says on on Joseph. It is too frequent and customary, I acknowledge, for those who think themselves superior to others to withdraw from the yoke and to become soft and effeminate through excessive timidity and solstitude about their affairs. But we ought to view it in a totally different light. For if riches and honors do not aid us in the worship of God, we utterly abuse them. The present occurrence shows how easy it is for God to correct wicked fears by hindering us from doing our duty. Since formerly Joseph did not venture to make an open profession about being a disciple of Christ when matters were doubtful, but now when the rage of enemies is at its height, and when their cruelty abounds, he gathers the courage and does not hesitate to incur manifest danger. What does that mean? Joseph was a very wealthy man. He could get audience here with Caesar. And so he puts a lot at risk by going and saying, hey, I want to I receive the body of this man who was just put to capital punishment. I, I want to take it. I want to be able to go and collect it and deal with it so it's not just thrown into some common grave into a ditch just couldn't sit right with him, that Jesus' body would go and be a part of some mass grave. For whatever reason, maybe holy courage, he decided it was time to come forward. Jesus had been tried, king of the Jews, and killed. If you fast forward a little bit past Jesus' death, as my friend would say when Paul saw that the boss was gone and he had an opportunity to start up a business, Paul got permission from the Jews to go and gather the people who were following after Christ and teaching this and bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. This is actually where he's going to encounter Christ on a road in what we would say is Syria now, so unfortunately we can't visit. And if you do sneak in as a backpacker and you get caught and you get put in jail, I think you should just stay. (laughs) This is the kind of tension that there is around Christ. So this wealthy man, and this is what John Calvin is saying, is it would be very easy for him to shirk back and protect his position in this world. But he risks everything by putting himself out there and effectively identifying himself with Christ as Peter would soon be not willing to do, right? When the, when, the, when the rooster crows, he's denying Christ. Denying Christ to this little girl. Denying Christ to anybody who says, well, No, 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 I did see you. No, you didn't. Go away. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to be identified with Christ. Verse 44, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Isaiah 59, or excuse me, 53, verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit, in his mouth. Pilate was surprised, maybe, that Jesus had died already. And this maybe brings our mind back to Mark chapter 6 and verse 26, where the disciples are coming for John's body in a similar fashion. We would do well to remember that we are better off in death than in life. It's so easy to protect what we think is important over identifying ourselves with Christ. Now I, th- I know it's, it's easy to see Joseph. It's easy to see Peter. It's difficult to think of our own situations. Like what are those opportunities where we have where we can definitely identify ourselves with Christ, but maybe it gives us some damage, some reputational damage, right? Because we're Americans. Maybe that makes us be looked at differently when we're at work. Maybe we know when when someone thinks that we're a Christian or we're a believer, maybe they believe there's other things that we say are true that maybe don't help us at work. When we remember that we are better off in death than we are in this life, we can live transcendently. We can live with eyes past this life. Jesus would be buried in a new tomb that Joseph had hewn out, no one had laid there previously. Maybe maybe in his mind he was building this for his family. He was a wealthy guy and this was going to be where you bury everyone. I, um, When I leave my house, I drive by on, on Sunday mornings and lots of mornings. I mean this most amazing scene. Um, I drive by a cemetery and most mornings there's a man that sits out there in a lawn chair by someone's grave. I think you know, I, I don't know who he is or what his story is. I imagine his his bride is there, and this guy is faithfully present there so regularly. And I think, man, what a what an awesome what an awesome thing that that is. But when we remember that we're better in death than we are in this life, as people whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that is freedom. That is just absolute freedom. To think your name in the Lamb's book of life, what more do you have to be concerned about? If you really believe this, if you really believe that, that Jesus could open up a book and look you up, and there you'd be. What are you worried about after that? Worried that people at the big fortune company might know, I believe in Jesus? Well, I hope they do. Boy, that's concerning if they would be surprised, Right? If I was to go up to my coworkers and say, "Hey, I'm a believer," and they're like, "Really you?" That'd be bad, I think. Look with me at Second Corinthians chapter five and verse eight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We're of good courage. Things are good. God is good, right? What, what's the first thing? You meet someone, you say hi, you shake hands. I'm never sure how you do that in yourself, but you shake hands, say hi. You ask them what they do. They tell you. And you have this little miniature competition over who works harder and who sleeps less, right? That's kind of like our thing. Um, we're of good courage. God is good. He blesses us with so much. Sure, there's things I don't have. But frankly, they're probably bad for me if I had them. Um, I could have some more toys. Gosh, if my life, if I was given all the toys that I wanted in my life, I would just be a complete idiot. Like I would need a ranch just to hold the stuff. I'd need my own lake. Um, You ever watch those videos on YouTube where the guys have like um, jet skis and swimming pools at their house and they could do backflip? I mean, that would be my house, okay? We're talking mansion to the next level. It would be disgusting and it would probably be horrible horrible for me because I would be so satisfied with such an idiot's lot in life. Um, and I, and I mean that like, I feel sometimes I think about like the richest of the rich and I saw someone recently saying there's all these rich guys racing to space and let's be real space. All right. Branson spent like eight minutes in an airplane and now he's an astronaut. Okay. Good job, buddy. That's super cool. You're awesome. You went to space. I mean, what's that giving us? Space. Will we get like Velcro and duct tape out of the deal? I really don't understand this whole space thing. God made it. He created it. He stretched it out across the universe. We can't even really see it. We don't know if things are coming towards us or going away from us. You know, and then uh, astronomers, almost am astrologists, astronomers talk about red shift and blue shift, right? We can kind of tell by the shift of light whether things are coming towards us or going away from us. It's so expansive. We can't even tell direction. God created all of that, and you're going to be present with him if your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, but you're satisfied by a swimming pool where you could do backflips with a jet ski? What kind of an idiot are we? God is so much greater than anything this life could ever get. Everything else is a circus clown compared to the holiness of God. And if we could just believe a bit of that, I wish I could believe that even more than what I'm saying. We would live radically different. Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So what's the tension? Maybe be able to tell someone maybe maybe to be able to glorify God with our actions so that people around us go, why is he so satisfied? Things in my life are hard. We're in a similar situation. Why, Why is he happy? Why is there a joy about his life? Why is there a joy about her life? What is she so satisfied in? We live in the same place. And there's your opportunity. God is good all the time. No matter the situation, no matter the circumstance, God is great. Verse 46, And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, a couple of things because I think people want to take verse 46 and and pick at it and pull at it and try to pull it apart and say, yeah, but this and that. I'm going to submit to you, that's not a lot of detail about a long period of time and lots of things that were going on. You're not finding holes. Mark's just not telling the part of the story that you're trying to pick at. The tomb would have been You you could see them still in Israel. You can walk into them. In fact, people would be glad to sell you a ticket to walk into the one that Jesus was laying in. I have a picture of myself standing in the doorway. Was it his tomb? I think probably not. (laughs) It's cool. It's good history. Hole hewn out of the rock, shelves placed on there, because what they would do is they would take the dead and they would place their body on the shelf inside this tomb. They would cover it up with a boulder, right? Because you've seen the painting. But I don't know how well a boulder covers a rectangle. So maybe it wasn't. But anyway, they put the body on this shelf. And then after a couple of years, um, one of my favorite... I, sometimes I like to read the king's English, but just because sometimes it's a little funnier. Um, because there's a time when Jesus tells him to go get someone's body and the king's English says, surely he must stinketh. Because there's this period where the body is in the tomb and it stinketh. Right? The flesh is rotting away. the 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 cover, the rock... The boulder, not the Petros, but the block that's hewn, is in front of the tomb door. And the body is inside rotting, right? You don't want animals getting in there. And animals are crafty, right? you ever talk to the Terminex people, they'll have you terrified, right? They'll show you all the places where, where they are getting in. They'll say, you see that mark that's along the wall? That's mice that are getting in. And, you know, you hear stuff in your house at night scratching at the ceiling. And you tell yourself, it's a bird on the roof. I mean, as an example. So, this body is supposed to be in there on the shelf, and the the flesh is rotting away because then the bones will be collected. And the bones will be placed in a box, and then the box will be put in a new place inside this tomb. But that won't happen to Jesus. And it's not that he fell asleep, it's not that he passed out. We've already verified that. They knew he was dead, they didn't have to break his legs, and they would have, they didn't care. These aren't softies. Right? These guys don't go home at night and say, oh, I just feel so bad. You know, I broke that guy's legs today. Now, it would have been customary for the body to have been wrapped up in spices. Um, we see actually in John chapter 19, 39 and 40, that Nicodemus brought, say, 75, 100 pounds of spices. That's pretty heavy. You ever carry 100 pounds. It's not, you know, it's not terrible, but it's not easy. That much spices and aloe and things to wrap the body up with. Now, there's a lot of interesting things going on here. I said Mark is not going to tell us the whole story. There's People will tell all kinds of backstories, and they're grabbing at straws, right? Maybe they would say, well, Joseph probably was a rich guy. He had someone else dig out the, the this tomb. So perhaps he had a team of people that were working for him because he wouldn't want to touch the body to get dirty for the Sabbath, to be ceremonially unclean. And so he had all these people working, and, and they would have taken care of the body. They had to wash it. Maybe they put some spices in there. Maybe they didn't. It's hard to tell because someone says that the women came along later in chapter 16 and wrapped the, or were ready to wrap the body with spices, but they couldn't find it. Uh, someone else says that the body had some spices on it. So we don't, we don't know is the answer. But that doesn't mean there's holes. That just means they didn't tell us. Right? <laughs> like nothing's broken. If I tell you, hey, I saw my boss yesterday and you're like, ha, I don't know what color his shoes were. Your boss wasn't there. That's dumb. I just didn't tell you what color his shoes were because I don't even know. Like I'm hoping right now in this moment that both of my shoes are the same. I don't catch those details. Sometimes it's amazing being me. The things that I don't have to be concerned with. What day is it? I don't know. I really, most of the time I don't know what day it is. I don't know what I ate for dinner last night. I don't even know what I ate for breakfast this morning. I don't eat breakfast. But if I did, I wouldn't be able to tell you because I don't concern myself with those kinds of things. Is it good? Probably not. But that's me. And so the gospel writers, all like that, had their own perspective. And leaving out some detail doesn't mean that the counsel of God is broken. You're just looking for problems. In fact, if you look back in Mark chapter 14 and verse 8, and I think this is fascinating. Fascinating. It's like um, when you see Jesus is in his uh, pre-ascended form. He's resurrected. He hasn't ascended. He's spending time on earth walking with the disciples. Favorite portions all of Scripture uh, beyond Matthew 121. Favorite portion all of Scripture, Jesus is talking with them and He's teaching them, and they describe it later. They said, when He taught, when He opened up the Scriptures, didn't our hearts burn within us? Now remember this story, Mark 14:8. Let me get there because I need a little a little context. I haven't been doing my sword drills. Let's read a little before. Verse 4. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Because that's what they were doing with the money. And they scolded her But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For You will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Verse 8, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. He just was prepared right there. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Tombs cut from rock with rooms and shelves. I mean, it kind of just depends how ornate these were, how deep they went. If there was a tunnel beforehand, they knew exactly where Jesus was. I think in our minds, we can kind of get where the, the ladies are like hiding behind a tree and they're, they're, they're kind of peeking constantly. Um, If you read what the scriptures actually say, Mark chapter 15 and verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Jesus was being very well taken care of. He was very well provided for by the people who just loved and treasured and cherished him. And these women were very much a part of the story, even though in the, in these times it wouldn't have been seen as they wouldn't have been seen as important at all. In fact, when numbers are given, they're not even counted frequent, frequently. Jesus is being ministered to, is fellowshipping, is encouraging one: "Hey, don't be so worried with the tasks. Spend some time with me. I want you to hear. I want you to be taught together with everyone else." This scene now in Jesus' body, where, where we leave off, Jesus' body is laying on a shelf, wrapped in shredded rags, maybe some spices. We're not sure. Did it happen here from Nicodemus' bag? Did it happen from previously? I don't know. And that's okay. What I know is that Jesus' body is very much dead, is laying on a shelf, waiting for the flesh to rot away. and That's heavy, but we know that that's not going to come to be. Um, it's heavy for them because they don't know what's going to come next. But for us who know the end and whose minds are heavenly oriented, we know that this is the pinnacle of all history. So we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 25. I've asked uh, Justin not to put the verses up on the slide so you can, you can listen as that's being read. Or you can read along, but spend some time this week in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 25.
1: Excellent treatment of a very somber moment in history by John the Greater. <clears throat> Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and follow along as I read. We've talked a lot about the law in the last two or three weeks here at the church, uh, both in Sunday school and from the pulpit. This is a summation of a lot of that. It's a summation of the outcoming, the outworkings of what. Pastor John was teaching on this morning. For the law, since it has only a shadow. For a shadow, you have to have light and substance, right? Shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there's a remainder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, and this is from the lips of Jesus in eternity past. When he says, sacrifice an offering you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me. That's the word for engineered. You've engineered me a body in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure then i said behold i have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will O god one of two times that jesus called god god the other time was on the cross i always called him father After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired. Nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Of the whole passage, don't miss that. Camp on that. Once for all. There are two different Greek words for the, that translate by our English word once. One means once upon a time. This word means once for all and forever. One time. Hopox, Once. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, For by one, notice the repetition of that word. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's the security of your salvation. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart. And on their mind I will write them, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Praise the Lord. He casts it in the sea of forgetfulness and puts up a sign that says, No fishing. God fishes for men, He doesn't fish for sin. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. We pass over that a lot, a lot. I'm going to go over here and visit Uncle Joe's church this Sunday. (laughs) If you are a member of a body, a local body of Christ, when you are not there, the body is crippled. But I'm not going to start that. uh <laughs> but it's a fact it's a reality but we have a great high priest a merciful high priest the lord jesus christ himself all those sacrifices were just a shadow they pointed to the one who should come and we have the incredible privilege of living in this age with him having come and paid the ultimate sacrifice the price for our sin This is our Jesus. And it's a permanent arrangement. Permanent arrangement. No exceptions, no exclusions. Nobody is left out who trust in him and him alone. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the word. Your word that has gone forth rightly divided, extolling the majesty and glory involved in your plan, your plan that you in your eternal mind hatched before the foundation of the world, before the world began, before anything was that is, you already had a plan to redeem us. It's not plan B, it's plan only. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you so much. Thank you for being mindful of us. The small specks of dust on this celestial ball that you've created, and yet you've given us individually hand-carved fingerprints as evidence that you're mindful and that you care about each and every one of us. Even the little things in our lives, Lord, because nothing is big to you, you care about. We just thank you for that. We can't get our minds around that. A God so great that you would love us. Apostle John said, what manner of love is this? What kind of otherworldly, unearthly love is this? We don't know anything about this love, Lord, and it's very difficult for us to catch up with it. We'll probably spend all eternity doing so. Thank you so much, Lord. For loving us. For caring about us. For seeking our highest good. For paying the price for a debt that we owed and couldn't pay. Father, we just thank you. We cannot say it enough. Over and over and over. With a thousand tongues, we couldn't say it enough. Thank you. Lord, we bless your name. We hallow your holy name. Lord, forgive us where we failed you and we have failed you, sometimes hourly. Lord, we uh, we agree with you about our sin. Let the fellowship be restored because the relationship remains the same. We're your children through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you for that. We bless you. We magnify you. We hallow your holy name. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: you oh.